Um, today we're going to read John 3:22 to the end of the chapter. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of, some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. <clears throat> they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. <clears throat> that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has, he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Simon? Thank you, Josh. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promise. You said that whenever we gather together, um, just like this, that you would be with us. Holy Spirit, would you teach us this morning? Would you open our hearts uh, and our minds to receive from you? not to merely learn more about you, but to experience more of you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Josh was uh, reading from the NIV. The words on the screen, I believe, were the ESV, in case you were kind of wondering, two uh, excellent but slightly varied translations. Um, two or three weeks ago, we were introduced to John the Baptist. Um, now the book that we're reading from, the gospel according to John, it's a different John. So there's actually a few Johns uh, in, in the gospel of John. Um, John the Baptist is who we were reading about this morning, who we were introduced to a couple weeks ago. He was the forerunner he was the man prophesied of in the Old Testament, specifically the book of Malachi, as the one who would prepare the way. 
um, for the Messiah, for Jesus. And uh, John, John was a big deal. In fact, all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the book we're reading from now, uh, feature John the Baptist as a prominent figure in, in the story, in the account of Jesus, his life, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles, his death, his resurrection. John um, is a big part of the story. In fact, in the book of Mark, as well as John, the Gospel of John, the story begins with John the Baptist. In the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, uh, John comes on the scene around the third chapter of each one of those gospel accounts. Uh, The point is simply that John the Baptist is kind of a big deal. He's a big part of the story. All of the people who he was interacting with around the Judean countryside in the first century all recognized him as a prophet. Um, Both people, normal people, as well as even some Roman soldiers were coming to John to be baptized in water. The Jordan River, elsewhere, someplace uh, near, you pronounced it Salem? Isn't it just Salem? Different Salem? They were coming to John to be baptized in water as a, a visible acknowledgement, an expression that they needed to be cleansed. They needed to be made new. So John's a big deal. Now here we just read that John's ministry, which had really taken off, I mean, he was the guy, John, John was the man. Everyone was coming to his meetings. Everyone wanted FaceTime with John. Everyone respected John. He was, after all, some kind of prophet, at least many thought. They were coming to John, but now, some of John's own disciples come to him uh, concerned because people are starting to leave John's meeting and go to Jesus' meeting. He's losing subscribers. And of course, John's disciples, his followers, uh, they're, they're, they're concerned. They're not excited about this idea that, hey, the, the thing that was really gaining some momentum is beginning to wane. Um, this isn't good. Maybe we need to re- revisit our marketing strategy. Uh, I don't know. And who, I know that you said that Jesus was the one, the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. Does that mean he's going like, to take away our followers as well? And you can just, the, the, the insecurity is obvious in the text. John's response is something else. He doesn't seem bothered at all. In fact, he said, my joy is now complete. I must decrease. I must become less. And Jesus must become more. Increase. Not only is he not threatened, but he's full of joy. He's excited about this thing. Now, when I I read this, when one reflects on like what would it have felt like? What, what level of security does one have to have 
in order to, to like process these things in the way that John did. He's not threatened, he's not insecure, he's not anxious, he's not, he's not somehow uh, worried that now his identity or his purpose or his ministry, the thing that he had been building is now gonna fall apart and he's gonna have an identity crisis. None of these things that I think us normal, <coughs> excuse me, us normal people would normally feel um, when things like that happen in life. We like to build things, like, uh, like this building. We've worked pretty hard over the last year and a half to make this place pretty. Um, where'd Taylor go? I'm gonna give Taylor a big shout out. Where'd Taylor Rashi go? You can't just peace out after the dedication. Oh, there you are, front and center. <laughs> yeah, Taylor Rassi pretty much single-handedly replaced all of the glass in this building. I, I, I gotta give you a shout out, come on, man. Uh, about, what, three or four weeks ago, someone broke one of the windows downstairs. Uh, a homeless gentleman needed to get inside and find a, a warm place to sleep, apparently. Um, it was a bit of a bummer, but it's also one of these things where like, gosh, man, like, if you're that desperate, shoot, I would have just, I would have let you in, you know? Like, you didn't have to break the window. And you, you build something, you make it nice, you put money into it, you invest your time, and you want it, you, you know, you, you, you want it to stay nice kind of a reflection of, of like who you are and your hard work. And at least in some way, I don't think necessarily in an extreme way, but in some way, you know, your identity kind of begins to intersect with the things that you're building. And it kind of feels good to make it grow, make it look even nicer, fill it with even more people. I can just speak for my own, my own life. But what do you do when that thing that you worked so hard on, that ministry, that career, that project, begins to, let's say, not work out the way you had hoped? It's not necessarily dying, it's not falling apart, it's not some big tragedy, but it's just, it's beginning to wane. <laughs> I think about John the Baptist. I think, man, Jesus referred to him elsewhere as uh, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. Among those born among women, in other words, I, it's some weird ancient idiom. Out of all of the people in the world, there is no one greater than John the Baptist. And when his ministry begins to wane, we're told that he was gonna be put into prison. Not yet, the other gospels actually record the event. He's arrested by Herod, the Tetrarch. Apparently he was criticizing Herod and his wife because there was some, some scandal in the family. Herod uh, apparently married his brother's wife. Don't know what happened to his brother, but if I had to guess, it was scandalous. And so John the Baptist takes it upon himself to 
uh, speak truth to power. Gets thrown in prison. He actually ends up getting decapitated in the end. But apparently he's okay with the decreasing. In fact, it's, it completes his joy. Now, I don't know if he was joy-filled when his head was being lopped off, but he wasn't bothered. He was not threatened. All right. How do you do this? How do you live this way? How do you go about life with such a deep, immovable security that when the thing you work so hard to build up, somehow your identity starts to sort of get wrapped up into, doesn't work out or go the way that you had hoped, you're not rattled, you're not, you're not having an existential crisis. You say, if I must decrease for the sake of Jesus getting more attention, somehow utilizing the circumstances of my life for his glory, so be it, my joy is complete. How do you do that? How do you live your life with that depth of security and joy? This is what I I want us to consider this morning. How does Jesus work in a person's life that we can navigate through the stuff of life like that? How? Jesus is establishing a kingdom where the economy of that kingdom is completely upside down. You've probably heard this before. It's like the backwards kingdom. Jesus says, pray that my kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. And when it begins to touch down, when the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus came to inaugurate, begins to break out in real time, it's got this really backwards sort of economy. The things that the the world, the quote-unquote world, deems as super valuable, not so much in Jesus' economy. But those who are written off by society as worthless, the least among everyone, now all of a sudden the kingdom, like, no, the little ones get front row seats in heaven. Those that society would write off, deem less valuable, are now considered valuable. That's Jesus's economy. That's the upside down economy of the kingdom. And in this sort of backwards, upside down kingdom, Jesus doesn't just take power from the strong and give it to the weak. That would be like an obvious thing to do. He doesn't do that. He doesn't just take power from the strong and then give it to the weak. Jesus calls the weak strong, and he calls the poor rich. He redefines how we view reality. He's not just trying to get all of the poor downtrodden people to take over like the, 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 the kingdom of the elite so that they can be the ones in power as if that's in any way going to break the cycle of sin and exploitation. No, he says new kingdom, new rules, new economy. He reframes reality. The weak are strong, the poor are rich, the cursed are blessed in my kingdom. 
This is what Jesus is all about. Now, in like the real world, you know, like real life, like tomorrow morning when we go to work, in that world, the more money and acknowledgement coming to me, the greater life becomes. Like that's, that's normal life, right? I'm not saying that's the way it should be. I'm not saying that's the way Christians uh, should want it to be. But that's kind of how real life works for the most part. The more money and accolades coming my direction, the better life is, right? Nice clothes, nice cars, full bank account, health, et cetera, et cetera. I want all of these good things to come my way and then I'm, I'm happy, life is good. But in the real, real world, this is Jesus' world, the real, real world, the more I can give to others, the more blessed I truly become. The less life is about me and more about Jesus, which means serving the least among us, the more my joy is made complete. Shh, no talking. I'm monologuing, my love, please. Okay, I'll read it. In the real world, the more money and acknowledgement coming to me, the greater life becomes. In the world of the kingdom, in Jesus' world, the more I can give to others, the more blessed I truly become. The less life is about me and more about Jesus, which means serving the least among us, the more my joy is made complete. Among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than even John. Have you guys heard this? If, you're, if, you, if you read the Bible, you've probably come across this verse. This is actually from the Gospel of Luke. I'm kind of crossing over a little bit. Among those born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist, and yet, the least in my kingdom is even greater than he. I used to read that and think, oh, so ba- what, what you're saying is like basically like the least of the best is better than John. In the kingdom, even like the bottom of the barrel is greater than John. I don't know if that's what Jesus is saying though. I think what he's actually saying, if we consider it in the context of everything else, I've just said, What he's saying, in my kingdom, the way the economy works, the least is always greater. And the more you become less for the sake of my kingdom, my vision, my values, and the least among you, the greater, in fact, you become because Jesus wants us to become great. This is like the weird, wonderful, backwards vision of the kingdom. He doesn't just want us to become less for the sake of like being pathetic. He wants us to become great. He wants us to be as great as perhaps even John the Baptist, the legend. But the way we get there, he says, go low. Give, bless, lose your life 
for the sake of others. That's the vision of my kingdom. Then you will be great. Perhaps even greater than John the Baptist. Do you want more joy? Of course we do. Do you want more joy? What a statement, my joy is now complete. Hey John, everyone's leaving your ministry to join Jesus's. Yes, my joy is complete. The thing I've been working on, building, putting my sweat, blood, and tears into for years now, it's, it's beginning to wane because everyone's going to Jesus's meeting. Yes, the pews are empty, awesome. My joy is complete. What a weird guy. You want more joy, learn what this saying means. Okay, this one's actually worth writing down. If you want to experience joy like John, understand this saying, life is not about me. And by me, I mean you. It's not about you. The life that Jesus invites us to experience. His life, new life is what the scriptures call it. It is such a, an odd, backwards, upside down economy. He says, give and you'll be blessed. Lose your life and you'll find it. Go low and you'll be lifted up like me. That's where kingdom joy is found. The world offers joy, and by the world I mean like the other kingdom, the normal economy, you know, like quote unquote real life. There's joy, there's joy there. I remember it quite well. It wasn't that long ago. I was enjoying the joy of this world. It's, it's uh, incredibly temporal. But it's joy a joy, but it's not kingdom joy. It's not the kind of joy that I think John was experiencing. Jesus offers us a different kind of joy. It's, and it's so contrary, I think, to what we've been conditioned to, to desire, to pursue, to expect, like in virtually every other aspect of our lives, which is why we need to be born again. God has to do something like fundamental in our hearts in order to experience this joy that he offers. So life is not about me. How do we live this out? Let's say, let's, I notice a lot of you are nodding. And I think even like whether you're Christian, non-Christian, religious or not, everyone kind of knows like if you make life all about you, good luck with that. You're gonna be a very shallow, unhappy person. Okay, no one's gonna to wanna to be around you. So I think at some level, we do get that intuitively. Life is not about me. It's about what I can do, it's what I can contribute, it's how I can be a blessing. If everything orbits around me, I'm like a, I'm like a two-year-old. It's lame, like you wanna grow up. How do we do that though? Like what, what, what is the thought process? What are some steps that we can take? And I think there's some things here right in the text that we read this morning. Verse 27. 
How do we live a life that's not about me? Verse 27, John said, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Everything in your life is gift. Everything. The breath you're breathing right now, gift. You might say, no, hang on a second, I worked hard. Did you? Where'd you get your body? Where'd you get your muscle? Where'd you get the air you're breathing? I know this sounds a little like highfalutin, like, oh, every gift is a, every breath is a gift. But this is, this is what the Bible teaches us. We were made by a creator who out of love decided to give us life, not because we had somehow proven ourselves worthy of it, but because of who he is. Your life and everything you have in it is a gift. Try to actually work that out in your relationships and see how it might not help you. In very, very practical terms, when you begin to take a sort of um, entitled mindset into your relationships, you become like an emotional black hole to the person you're expecting to receive affection from. I was nice, I spent some money, I bought dinner, I washed the dishes, I folded the laundry, I did all these things. Now I deserve some affection, I deserve some acknowledgement, I deserve to be loved. No you don't, no you don't, and nor do I. Because the very breath in your lungs is a gift. And you don't deserve to be loved. I know some of you are like, wait, hang on a second, back it up. Where's that verse again? You don't deserve to be loved, nor do I. God doesn't love us because we deserve it. He loves us because he loves. It's like at the core of his being, he loves. The problem with thinking that you deserve to be loved is that, well, number one, it wrecks your relationships. Again, it makes, you, it makes you become like an emotional black hole. I deserve, I deserve, I deserve, I'm entitled, I expect. It destroys relationships. But here's the flip side of it. Half the room probably doesn't need me to tell them you do not deserve to be loved because you walk into a room like this and immediately we sing the songs, you start thinking about God and you think, I don't deserve to be here. I deserve nothing. All I can think about is what I did last night and how I messed up all of those times. I feel like I don't deserve anything. Why would God love me? Why would God save me? Why would God bless me? Why would God want to have anything to do with me? I don't deserve to be loved. Ding, ding, ding. This is the gospel. God loves us even while we were still dead in our sins, while we were living in rebellion, opposed to our creator. God loved us. So on my best day and on my worst day, I don't deserve to be loved, I just am. I'm loved. It's a gift. It's a gift. The air I breathe, salvation, my resources, my able body, the fact that I got born into this country, 
However you might feel about it, it's a gift. It's a gift. And there will always be people to tell you otherwise. John's disciples, they came to him and said, hey John, we got a problem. Everyone's leaving your meeting. We gotta fix it. You deserve better than this. You've worked hard. Can you, can you hear the voices? I, I remember, um, I was just thinking like, what, what, is, what are some moments in my life where I have felt this in, in some of the most painful ways? And I was, I was remembering when I was in my 20s, I felt the Lord uh, prompting me to quit my job as a middle school teacher give my notice, and become a full-time campus missionary and raise my own salary. So that's what I did. I gave my notice, and I, I got about trying to figure out, how, how do I raise, like, how, do, how does a missionary do this? I've talked about this many times. So I did it. I did it. I went around, like, hey, I'm trying to raise money. I'm going to be a campus missionary. Uh, can you, <laughs> you know, give me some money? And people, people, people fell for it. <laughs> they did it. It was awesome. It was great. Super humbling. Super humbling. But yeah, God was faithful. God was faithful. And I remember raising my salary, my little missionary salary, and going to Starbucks, walking up, thinking like, man, I want to get, I'm feeling like a, feeling like a latte. Maybe a white chocolate mocha venti and then thinking oh snap but what if one of my ministry partners one of my donors is in the cafe how am I going to justify buying myself a venti white chocolate mocha that's just that's not I, surely I don't deserve that sort of lifestyle and I remember feeling guilty like no I don't I like, I, I would do it if I knew for sure no one was going to find out about it. But if people knew, I would feel like, well, I don't deserve that. It would be irresponsible. Because I didn't realize that every dollar and cent was a gift from God. I thought somehow that the only way I could justify buying myself a venti latte was if somehow I had worked hard enough to prove to God and anyone who might be watching that I do deserve a white chocolate mocha. And it's stupid and it's funny. And it's life. It's life. We live our lives walking around thinking, do I really deserve to be loved? I don't think so. So I'm going to treat myself like crap because that's how I deserve to experience life. I don't deserve to be blessed. I don't deserve salvation. I don't deserve a second chance. I don't deserve to be liked. I don't deserve to be included. You're right. And you are anyway. Because it's not even about you. It never was. It's a gift. And 
it's okay to feel the pain of living the Jesus lifestyle in a world that's still building towers. Genesis chapter 11. I won't get into all the details of the story, but the world was being consumed with evil. It was thoroughly broken through and through. Every human heart was affected by sin. Self-centeredness, let me put it that way. And so God flooded the world. He said, I've got to start over. I've got to cleanse the whole world. It's actually like a kind of a picture of baptism. I've got to cleanse the whole world and, and, and start anew. And so he does that. And he picks one family, a guy named Noah and his wife and his boys and their wives. And he puts them on a boat and they pass through the water. And it's called an ark. And it's a picture of what Jesus was meant to do for us as we would pass through the flood in Christ, as God cleanses the world of evil once and for all. And you know what happened just when they got on the other side of the the, the water? He began to build a tower with its top all the way in heaven. The people thought, we must build a name for ourselves. We must prove that we are worth ascending the mountain. And so they proceeded to build a tower to get to the heavens, to acquire the blessings. And this is the world. If you want to be blessed, you've got to build up. You've got to clamor your way to the top. You've got to show that you're worth being blessed. You've got to wheel and deal. You've got to barter for the affection of God. It's the same thing humans have been doing since the Tower of Babel. And then Jesus comes along and says, hey, You know, there's another way. There's another way to experience the life you're looking for. Do you want to be blessed? Lose your life. Come follow me. I'll teach you the way. I'll show you the way into my kingdom. And so we begin the journey. But the world goes on. Humans keep building their towers. And here we are living in like that, the twilight zone where everyone is around us saying, wait, wait, how's your tower coming, man? How's your tower? What's your, what's, what sort of mortgage rate you got? Man, let me, let me buy you some new clothes. Dude, you, you need a latte, man. You need to work harder. Let me teach you how to build your empire up so that you can be blessed like I am. And that's, that's the world we live in. And by the way, this is not like, hey, we don't need to work hard message. Go back a little bit further in Genesis chapter uh, 3. We, we read of how when sin entered the world, God had to deal with his people, Adam and Eve. You might recall the story. And he said, two, two things happened when the humans sinned and rebelled against God. Number one, he told the woman that you are going to, he said, in pain, you will build your family. In pain, you will bring little ones into the world. And he turned to the man and he said, in pain, you will work and labor and bring forth fruit from the ground. Family and vocation both get completely twisted. But it wasn't meant to be that way. It wasn't meant to be. Work got cursed. Work was supposed to be a good thing. As a follower of Jesus, I'm actually, I have been saved to work really hard. Only sweat was supposed to, it was supposed to be an act of worship. 
My labor was meant to be a, a way of participating in, in, in creating good things and bringing order to a world with my heavenly father. Work was meant, meant to be good. So in Jesus' kingdom, work gets redeemed. And my point is simply, I'm not saying we don't need to work hard because it's just all gift. No, no, no. We're gifted so that we can work, so that we can participate in what our Father is doing. And that way, work becomes an act of worship and joy is restored in labor. But living in a world of tower builders while trying to follow Jesus, it's painful. This is, and John felt it, like for real. He got his head chopped off. And while he was in prison, he began to wonder to himself, is Jesus the one? It was Luke 7, 28 that Jesus said, there's no one as great as John in the kingdom of heaven. But if you back up just 10 verses, you know what John was saying? While locked up in prison, he calls his disciples. He says, hey, I need you to go talk to Jesus because I'm really beginning uh, to question whether or not this is, in fact, the life that I signed up for. Is he the one or should we be looking for another? And I think this beautiful picture of the fact that when we follow Jesus, there is a very real tension. And it's okay. It's okay to be living your life and think, man, I'm supposed to be feeling joy, but I'm like, this feels more like a Roman dungeon. Am I allowed to feel that way? Can I say that out loud? And I would say, if you're anything like John the Baptist, then by all means, be honest. It's okay. It's hard following Jesus in a world that demands you get to work building your tower. You will feel that tension, and it's okay. And here's my last point. If you forget everything else I said, don't forget this. Wait, two things. It's not about you. Second thing is, learn to enjoy Jesus. Learn to enjoy Jesus. John the Baptist said, now my joy is complete. We're told elsewhere that when John was still in his mother's womb, Elizabeth, she had an encounter with Mary, Jesus' mother. It was the two mamas, both pregnant. They met each other and were told that John leapt for joy in his mother's womb. This joy that was being completed, this was not just something that started like in the moment. John had been looking forward to this moment all his life. The kind of joy that we're to experience in the kingdom of Jesus, it's not this like just say this prayer, raise your hand, bow your head, do this thing, and you're just gonna be like overcome with just this nonstop pure joy. That's not what happened to John, because this started way back. When he was still in his mother's womb, something began to stir. This infant was experiencing the joy of Jesus. 
And I think there's something in that. It's not a abstract joy. It's not a disembodied joy. It's not merely the emotion we often attach to what we call joy. It's all those things and then some. It's the joy of actually getting to know Jesus. Experiencing life with Jesus, walking with Jesus, learning to hear his voice, getting to know him. There is no joy in life like the joy that comes in a good, healthy relationship. If you don't know Jesus like that, can I, um, can I beg you to start the journey? Can I suggest that whatever joy you're getting elsewhere is nothing compared to Jesus? You may not believe me. You may be like, ah, look, I, I'm keen to come to church sometimes and I'm, I'm a believer, but do you know Jesus? Do you know the joy that comes from following the one who's the source, the source, and that no matter what happens, can I invite the worship team to come up, please? No matter what happens, whether you're in prison, facing death, there is a joy available. Whether your empire is just skyrocketing or things aren't quite working out, there is a joy available because Jesus is the greater one. He's greater than life circumstances. He's even greater than death. He's greater than your empire. He's already built the tower for us. He's the only one who has ascended the mountain and he invites us to come. There is joy in knowing Jesus. Can we stand together, please? So, as we've been working through John, the, uh, the strap line we've sort of been using to tie, tie these things together is uh, walking with Jesus. That's like the subtitle for our series, walking with Jesus. It's a long, windy road. It's a meandering journey full of ups and downs. Some parts of the trip are super confusing. Other parts are just sheer joy. I think oftentimes we expect what the scriptures describe to come to us in like um, in an Amazon package like a transaction. I hit the button, I do the thing, and it shows up on my doorstep. And of course, it never actually works out that way. And so then the temptation is to be like, ah, kind of tried that, but eh, wasn't for me. And I would say, you tried nothing. You tried nothing. You missed it completely. And I want to ask you to try again. Perhaps for the very first time, surrender to Jesus trust him. Simply ask him, Lord, how, how, how do I lose my life? What steps can I take 
to begin living in such a way that truly this is not about me. I am not the hero of my story. I'm not even the main character. Help me, Jesus. Something like that probably starts with a simple prayer. You simply saying the words from your heart out of your mouth, Lord Jesus, I'm tired of building, I'm tired of the, the pressure of erecting the tower. Lord Jesus, I wanna, I wanna trust you. Would you teach me how to decrease, how to surrender my life, how to live for others, how to live for you? I want to surrender. Lord, would you help me? Would you teach me how? As we worship, consider those, those words. Consider my appeal. If you'd like someone to pray with you, you can come down front. You can find your way to one of the little cafe tables on the side. Someone will probably meet you there, sit with you, pray for you. Let's worship together.